So this is week two of the gospel in week two of two, I should say. This will be our last one here um, on the gospel and politics. And so just to recap from last week, kind of some of the big things that we talked about is that the Bible is our guide for all that we do. Everything is judged by God according to his word. Uh, we need to remember to keep things in the proper perspective. Um, some people came and said, like, I went through my priority list, and this is where politics is, and for them it was more important than it is for me, and that's okay, right? But we just need to keep it in perspective of where it is, and to remember that no matter what happens, God is still ruling and will rule forever. And so today we are going to be looking forward. It's going to be uh, a lot more practical. If last week was about how to think about politics, this week is going to be how to act in your life about it. Um, and so we're going to be answering questions like, how do we live out what we know about the Bible and politics? How do we live in wisdom and grace? And so there's a lot of things, just to be honest, that did not make it into these two sermons that we could talk about, but I felt like I'm giving you the most important um, we're also just scratching the surface of this topic, which I think you guys understand. Um, but we just, so you know, this is not something that we just leave behind. Like everything else in Scripture, we believe that the Bible applies to all of our lives and the principles that are in there um, apply to every area of our lives, whether it's our marriage or our jobs or politics or whatever it is. So we, you, we will hear these kinds of things as we go, so we're not just leaving them behind. Um, we'll sprinkle them in as we apply other scriptures to our lives. Um, I do want to remind you of a couple of resources. I have these books, How Can I, How Can I Love Church Members with Different Politics. I have some of them over here. If you want one after the service, just come and pick it up. It's yours um, for free. But here's what I'm asking if you come get one, that you actually read it, that you don't just take one and put it on your shelf with all of your other books that are on your shelf that you thought, one day I'm going to read this, and you didn't. Um, it's super short. Um, if you're even a decently fast reader, it's just a little bit more than an hour <clears throat> to read the whole thing. And it, when, after you read it, I just want you to like tell me or send me or text me something that you learned from the book, just to like continue having a dialogue about these kinds of things. So that is there. Um, the other thing I wanted to give you is to give you a, a website to go to, not just for this kind of topic, but for others. Um, there's a website, there's an organization called the Gospel Coalition, and it's essentially a group of pastors and theological people who kind of help the church and equip them in this area. And so it's gospelcoalition.org, or um, they've had several articles that I've read this week. One of them was like the history of the two-party system and how we ended up where we were and how everything used to be flipped from what it is now. Um, and that's going to come up a little bit. But one of the articles even this week is how to navigate the generational divide in politics, right? Because it seems like we're sort of splitting between older and younger and we just can't agree on what we should do. And one of his points in there was, that's kind of how it's always been. When you guys were younger, you didn't think your parents knew what they were doing either. And so it's just kind of repeating itself over and over. But he gives a good explanation from kind of all the way through. It's a pretty good description. And so that's a place you can go um, to look for um, places. They agree with us on the big things theologically. So we may not agree on all of the things that they put in their articles, but I think that's a helpful resource for you. Um, the last thing that I'm going to throw in at the beginning is just about government in general. We're not really going to talk about its function and purpose. 
Um, but there is a piece that is important for us to understand, that government is, in our case, is good and is necessary. And here's what I mean by that. The government actually sets the stage for us to be able to do evangelism, right? If we don't have laws, if we don't have government that enforces those laws, it's really difficult for us to do ministry because it's just chaos everywhere, right? So we are thankful and are glad that government is good, and we are grateful in God's sovereignty that he has allowed us to live in this time, in this country, so that we have the freedom to share our faith openly and actually have some things that help us in that process. And so the government also has power to do things that the church does not. God, in nowhere in Scripture does he give the church power to enforce speed limits or other things like that. That's not the responsibility of the church. So government and church kind of work in different lanes doing those things. But I just wanted to give you that up front because we're not really talking about role of government this morning. And so with that, here we go. We're going to jump in. Um, your points are not in the same order as your bulletin, <laughs> because when I looked at it last night, they didn't connect the way I wanted them to. So I think just one of them is flipped, but you'll be able to follow along. They're all there. So the first thing that we should do in this area, or just in general, is to be people of the truth. God is the God of truth. He's not just the standard for truth, but also the judge of what is true and the source of truth. And for us, we would say the gospel, what Christ did for us on the cross, he actually was a person who lived on earth and he physically died on the cross and he rose again, that all of those things are truth. And we would fight for those because if those things are not true, then even the Bible tells us we're just kind of wasting our time here, right? So we fight for truth because truth matters. And I know that sometimes we complain that people don't hold that the Bible is true or that we live in a time where truth is relative to each person. But I think that means we need, as Christians, to uphold truth in all areas, not just the areas of Scripture and Christianity, that we need to be people of the truth across, across the board. Because if there's no standard for truth, it leads to chaos. Everybody decides, right? You see these verses in Scripture, and everyone did as they pleased. Usually something really bad happens after that, right? So we, that's kind of what it looks like if there's no truth. And it doesn't mean that there aren't standards of truth. It just means the standard isn't us. We are not that standard. We see who is the standard for truth in Scripture. In John chapter 14, says this, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your word is truth. Each of your righteous judgments endures forever. Jesus is the truth, not just speaks the truth, he is the truth the source of truth and the standard of truth, and all of his words are truth. So that means that truth and reality, how we actually experience the world, are set by God. He knows all things, and so we can trust anything that he reveals in Scripture to us. Truth is not defined by our own subjective standards. It's determined by the source of truth himself. 
and I'm, you're going to hear this again, but God is the only way to understand truth and reality. We can't let the news or politics or opinion, opinions or traditions shape the way we react to things and live our lives. So if we're called to be people of the truth, how do we actually live that way? What do we do to be people of the truth? So first, we need to seek the truth. Not just in Scripture, but in all things. And this is kind of my observations of kind of where we're at in our culture and why this is actually really difficult right now. Because in our current culture, it's really hard to know what is true. Because anybody with a cell phone or anybody with a computer can put out anything they want on the internet and it's instantly accessible to everyone else on the planet. Right? There's no filter for that. Anybody can do that. And so it's very, very hard to know what is actually true. Because, and what happens is, you, if you try to do research, that's also really, really hard. Like, I'm pretty tech-savvy, pretty computer literate, but sometimes when someone posts something, I can't even find what the real truth is and what the real story is. So it's really, really hard. But what happens is, and this is kind of, all kind of ties in together, what happens is when you can't figure out what's actually true, it pushes you back to the people you already agree with. And so it pushes us back into our own corners and people we already agree with. And then slowly, we get further and further and further apart because we can't tell what's actually true. It just pushes us to the people that we already agree with, to the extremes. Pair this with the fact that we are live in a time where people are selling the news. They're not reporting the news to you, they're selling it, right? I, one of the things that I read in the, just kind of the history of the two-party system, I was not that old when this happened, but until 1987, if you gave an opinion or a, something on a, a, a policy matter or something like that in your newscast, you had to give equal time to the opposite view called the Fairness Doctrine, and it was repealed in 1987, which meant you no longer had to give both sides. You could give your side only and ignore the other side. And so I think we've seen kind of where that gets us, but the news now is trying to get you emotionally engaged, which leads to sensational headlines and extreme positions that I think are, mo it's hard to say mostly, but I think are actually stereotypes and caricatures of the truth or real positions that people hold. I've, I've, some of the things I hear on the news from both sides, I don't think anybody actually holds those positions. I think they just take the extreme and say, this is what they're saying so that we'll get mad at the other side. Right? So we need to seek the truth so that we can actually understand what is happening, so that we can actually talk to people. The other thing is, don't treat opinions as facts. If you're online or social media or even news sites, they have done a very good job at now treating opinions as facts. So it looks like a news article, but it's actually an opinion. And so I want us to be careful to not treat opinions as facts. Because we sometimes think we can decide what is true, right? You read something, I like what this says, I like this story, I want it to be true, and that's okay, but we need to verify that it is true also. 
because this is kind of a, this is a light bulb moment for me, is um, if you don't know that something is true, especially if it's about another person and you share it, um, that's called gossip, right? I don't think we think about it that way. We don't think about sharing something on social media as gossip or as something like that, but the Bible is very clear, right? We don't gossip about other people because we are people of the truth. And so my challenge to you is, if you're not sure that it's true, don't share it. Don't pass it on until you can verify that it's true. And I know that's really hard. I know it. I get it. I understand that. But that's my challenge to you. If you're not sure it's true, then maybe it's not that important anyway. And don't pass it on. So we need to be people of the truth. I think we understand that. So next, we're to, the next thing we need to do is don't silo your theology. Now, I think that's probably a weird phrase or something new to you. Um, so what does that mean? It means we don't take a theological principle and apply it to one thing, but not to the other things. Think of, right, grain silos that are huge and really tall, and there's usually a bunch of them together, and they separate the grain from each other. And so you can't take one thing and mix it with the others. That's the whole design is to separate them from each other. But the gospel and theology doesn't work that way. It applies to all areas of our lives, and our theological and biblical principles should as well. And so how does that connect here? We need to apply our theological issues or biblical principles across the board on all issues. Right? We sometimes apply a theological principle to one issue, but not to the others. Um, just so you know, I mean, abortion is one of the <clears throat> things that we're going to talk about because I think that's one where Christians kind of disagree on how we should attack it, which we'll get to in a minute. But the, the thing behind that is, <clears throat> right, all life is valuable. We are made in the image of God, which is true. <clears throat> and so we need to apply that principle across all of the issues, not just that one. Give me just a second. All right, here we go. Also, we are called to care for the poor and the needy. Jesus um, himself in Matthew 25, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. We're on the environment. We're called to be good stewards of the earth from the beginning. And so when we think about issues, do we just take the one biblical principle that we like and match it up to an issue and then not apply it to the other ones? But instead, we should say, uh, instead of saying, what's the first thing I think of and apply it to the issue, we should say, how does this all together? So one of the things that is important for us as Christians is that all life is valuable. And that comes from the very beginning when God created us and he said we are made in the image of God. And so we are 
all image bearers. So all humans, all people have value, and we believe that because life begins at conception, that it begins there until you're actually dead. All of life has value. So that's, how does that principle, yes, it applies to abortion, and I think we all understand that, but how does it apply to other issues? And I'm just going to ask you questions on this um, just to think through this. So in the issue of immigration, do we see those who wish to come here as people or as something else, as a nuisance or a danger or a burden? In care for the poor or the homeless, do we drive by and ignore them? Do we refuse to engage or help them or see them as people made in the image of God or less than a normal person? Racial injustice, Do we treat all people as equal and understand the unique situations and dangers of those who may be different than us? Or health care. How do we think about providing medical care for everyone as image bearers? Are those who have less resources less deserving of medical care? The environment. How do we have a healthy planet for all people so that we can all as image bearers be healthy? Or area of defense. How do we think about guns and the military? Do we say they need to be as strong as possible or just enough to be safe? And where is the line to determine where that is? Or capital punishment. If we're all image bearers, should we be taking the life of others as punishment for crime? Right? So it's taking that one concept and it's applying it and thinking about it in all of the other areas instead of just that one. And that's true for all of the biblical principles that we have in all of those issues. So we could do this for a long time, but I'm not. I'm just going to give you one and trust that you guys are smart enough and understand the concept that you can do this on your own. Um, so, but this next point will also help in this area, which is live out your politics. This is one of the most challenging to me when I came across this, so I wanted to share it with you. Um, our faith informs how we live, right? We would say it's not full or complete faith until there's actually evidence that you are a believer in Christ, that you're living it out. And so we see this kind of, this, I want to share this verse with you from 1 John 3, um, 13 through 18. And it says this, Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Right? Let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. The way that we live out our faith is not just saying things, but actually living them out, living out the truth of the gospel. And so we're called to live that out personally, and we're also called to live that out corporately as a church. And so what does this look like? And I'm 
not going to be better at explaining this or giving you this than from the person that I got it from. And so it's not this book. It's another. It's the other book I showed you, um, How the Nations Rage, which is Jonathan Lehman, um, who wrote this little one also. Um, but I'm just going to read what he said in this area to kind of challenge, it challenged me just to think about how I actually live out my politics on a personal level, right? Because at all level, our faith is supposed to do that. And so just listen to this. I think it'll be helpful. You who call for immigration reform, do you practice hospitality with those who are ethnically or nationally different than you? You who vote for family values, do you honor your parents and love your spouse self-sacrificially? You who speak against abortion, do you also embrace and assist single mothers in your church? Do you encourage adoption? You who talk about welfare reform, do you give to the needy in your congregation? You who proclaim all lives matter, do all your friends look like you? You who lament structural injustices, do you work against them in your own congregation? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? You who fight for traditional marriage, do you love your wife, cherishing her as you would your own body and washing her with the water of the word? As you, there's one about tax rates, I don't think that's, I'll read it anyway. You who care about corporate tax rates, do you treat your employees fairly? Do you threaten them, forgetting that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him? So I think that helps us kind of think about this issue is your politics aren't just what you say, right? Which is how I thought about it for almost my entire life is it's how I vote and it's how I want the government to do things. But he's actually saying this actually begins in your life. If you say it's as important to you as you say it is, then there should be evidence of those things in your life. We're actually called to live those things out. And so he actually argues that the Christian life is actually the center of your politics because it shows you how to live, and then that shows you how to address these issues as you come there, as you go there. Politics are not just things we vote on or for the government, but also for how we live. We're also supposed to live those out corporately as a church. Um, and before I, I get to those, I, I, I was listening to a podcast where Tim Keller, he was a pastor in New York, um, was being interviewed. The interview wasn't even about politics, but it was about how churches should be thinking about today's culture and how to reach them. And if you don't know the name Tim Keller, he's way smarter. Like, I consider myself pretty intelligent. He's always like oh, he's way smarter than I'm ever going to be in my entire life. And he has a unique ability, I think, to connect what's happening in culture with Christianity and explains it very, very well. And what he said was, um, he, saw, he sees four things in Scripture, and I think I agree with him. We could always add more to the list, but I think these four are, are a good start. He said he saw four things in Scripture that should characterize Christians. Christians ought to be sold out for racial justice, right? All men are created equal. We're all image bearers. Christians should be deeply concerned about the poor. We just saw the verses about caring for the poor, just like we're caring for Jesus. Christians should be pro-life, and Christians should believe that sex should only be between, between a man and a woman in marriage. Now, 
What's interesting about those, if you actually listen to them, is in our current climate, two of those are considered usually conservative, and two of those are considered more liberal. And so what he was saying is, you really have to do both sides. You can't align with one party if we're actually going to live out Scripture. We need to side with Christ, right? We live out what God has called us to do, regardless of what political party supports it, and whether it's popular or not, right? Whatever side it is. I think along with that, on this note, Christians should listen to what Republicans and Democrats have to say on things like welfare policy and tax policy and racial reconciliation and the refugee crisis and growing suicide rates, but I also think our thinking shouldn't start or stop there. Our thinking should be more expansive, more complicated, more personal, more humane than what anybody else on the planet thinks it should be. Our political instincts should develop by living inside the loving and difficult relationship that comprise a church, right? Some of the ways that we're going to have conversations about these things together actually help us in this process. And this is another line from somebody else, but it also struck me. You might even say our political thinking should be pastoral. We should be pastoring others, discipling others, loving others, caring for them in the way we think about how we have these conversations. And another list of examples from the the book I referenced earlier, just in this area of corporate, kind of living it out as a church. Welfare isn't just a policy area. It's a sister in Christ who accepts help, but only on her terms. What are you going to do? Taxes aren't just a public matter. It's the financially strapped member of the body sitting at your kitchen table. How do you respond? Racism isn't just something we witness on the news. It lurks in our churches and in our hearts. Will we confess? Will we address it? Immigration isn't just a topic for politicians. It's someone trying to join your church. Will you open the door? Answers to these things and how we live should be personal, and I think they should be pastoral, whether your title is pastor or not. I think we should be thinking about how to shepherd and love people in these areas in real life. The real people that we talk to and we interact with not what the news tells us they should look like or what their opinions are. I want us to act for the glory of Christ by the wisdom of the Word in all of these areas. And as we do that, I think we need to be understanding and full of grace. This connects to what I talked about last week, and I said I would give you more on that this week. So we talked about whole church issues versus Christian freedom issues or straight line issues versus jagged line issues. So what the difference is and how we prioritize those and talk about them. Um, Just for fun, I went to our doctrinal statements because I thought there's probably some whole church issues already listed for us there. And what do you know? There were. So our whole church issues in our doctrinal statement for our church are this. In the Spirit of Christ... Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphaned, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. 
We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. That's in our doctrinal statement, that those are the things that we fight for as a church. Those are the issues. Now, here's where it gets really complicated, and this is where most of the arguments and disagreements and anger comes from, and we're going to slowly work through um, all of those things. But here's where it starts. Two Christians can agree on the biblical principle. They can read this same thing from the doctrinal statement and disagree on which policies, methods, tactics, or timing best uphold that principle. Right? It's full of lots of tough questions. But we need to be willing to admit that the answers to most of these questions rely on wisdom, not explicit biblical principles. For example, here we go. Agreeing that abortion is murder is different than agreeing on the political tactics for overcoming abortion. Some Christians may take an incrementalist strategy, meaning we slowly get rid of it piece by piece by piece. So they advocate for policies that prohibit abortion with the exception of rape and incest because they think those policies have a better chance of passing. Other people think the incrementalist strategy is like compromising and they adopt an all-or-nothing approach. Still others may insist on adding whole-life considerations to our opposition to abortion. In addition to that, just to throw some more in there, should we picket abortion clinics? Well, you might feel comfortable doing that. Other Christians may not. We don't want to make willingness to picket a clinic a test of faithfulness to Scripture. A decision to picket a clinic depends on a host of judgments that are not necessarily a straight line from Scripture. Like, is such a protest more effective than other forms of opposition? Do protests risk hardening the hearts of abortion advocates? Right? Who is right strategically? It's hard to be certain because in that area, we are relying on our own wisdom. The Bible has principles that bring this to bear, but it doesn't speak directly to political tactics like that. And so that's where it gets complicated is because we want there to be like, well, we're against this, so everybody does it this way. But that's not how it works. I think we realize and need to realize that things are much more complicated than they seem. And if nothing else, I think the coronavirus has taught us that, that things are much more complicated than we think they are, right? We just need a mask. We just need social distance. We just need a vaccine. But what do we do in the meantime? Like, how do we get parents to work and kids to school and do all of that safely? Like, there's all these things that are connected to each other that we didn't realize until everything shut down. And we had to refigure out how to open it back up. So even in all of these political issues, it's always way more complicated than we think it is. And also, one of the reasons some of these issues are more important to you than for other issues is because of your personal experience. Right? You had someone who went through something and you said, I can never vote this way again because I've seen this. Or maybe you came here from another country and that influences the way that you see immigration. Or your parents did. Right? So it sometimes becomes very personal for us. 
because of our experiences. And so we need to understand people's experiences to actually have the conversation. But then I got this when I was asking people, like, what should I talk about? And one of the the things that almost everybody is, why do we get so angry about political discussions? Like, what is happening that everybody is just angry? And I'm still working on that, but one, I think part of this is, it's a, when we look at politics, we see it as a matter of justice, right? Of things that should be a certain way. This is the right way to do something. And as Christians, right, we should oppose injustice. And so sometimes we get angry because we see someone supporting what we see as injustice or what we perceive to be injustice. So when we disagree politically, you're actually questioning somebody else's commitment to justice and fairness and what is right. Now, that... You may not always be right, but I hope this helps you make sense and questioning kind of why you're getting angry, I think, will be helpful. So if you find yourself getting angry because of someone else's view, take some time to understand why. What are you protecting? What are you worried about losing? Is there an injustice that you are trying to solve that conflicts with that view? Right? It's usually a matter of justice. We just disagree on what that actually looks like. And I think that's why we get angry. It's like when your kids yell at each other or yell at your, their parents. That's not fair. Right? I think that's us saying it's not fair for that to happen to somebody or for that not to happen to somebody or for them not to be protected or for them not to have those rights or for you to take them away. And so we're essentially, I think we're saying is that's not fair, but we don't always have the language, like our kids don't, to express that or to think through that. So think about why you're getting so angry. What is it about that? And is there an issue of justice that's underneath that you just haven't quite discovered or don't realize that's there? But in our response to our anger, right, God calls us to be like Him. We see over and over and over in Scripture God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love again and again and again, which is good news for us because we mess up a lot. And he is abounding in steadfast love to us. And that's what we are called to be to other people. Yes, fellow church members, but also just other people in the world. In James chapter 1, there's a verse towards the end of the chapter that says, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Right? This is like the age-old expression, listen twice as much as you talk. It'll probably be good for you. Those kind of things. That's why you got two ears and one mouth. Right? But the second part of that verse says, For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Getting angry And arguing with somebody else on these issues is not going to get us anywhere. It's not going to get us to an understanding of each other. It's not going to get us to grace. It's probably not even going to get us to biblical principles. It's going to get us to opinions and anger, and then we get mad and we walk away. So we need to be full of understanding and of grace. And that actually takes time. You can't do that in five seconds on an Instagram post or social media or reading the news. You actually have to talk to another person and have a real conversation about it. The other thing on that is just to remember the people that
that you disagree with are not your enemies. They are your neighbors and even your fellow church members. And even if they are your enemies, you know what God tells us to do? Pray for your enemies. Even if you see them as your enemies. Not just that they would change their mind. No. You pray for their good. You pray good things for your enemies. Right? And as you, I think as you begin to do that, your actually heart changes in how you see them. So be understanding and full of grace because it's super complicated. We may think it's simple, but it's usually not. Next is, and I'm probably preaching to the choir on this one, but I just want to make sure it's included. Um, the next one is actually to vote. Um, participate. Actually go and vote in the polls. And not just for president. Vote for everything. And be informed as much as you possibly can. Um, in the last election, I guess that was 2016, I spent like four hours one day trying to be informed on all of the things and all of the races that were on my ballot. And I was actually pretty frustrated because I couldn't find information on some of the candidates because I went all the way down the list to railroad commissioner and all of those things that we, we don't even know what those people do, most of us, but we vote on them. And so I tried to do that, and I get it's frustrating. And to find an unbiased source that gave me information on those candidates was even harder, right? You can go to their party or something else, and you'll get the, the good version of what they believe, but you rarely get what they disagree with. And then think and pray about how to vote on all of them. Because one of the things that, I don't remember where I read it, but one of the things that we fight so much, some of the things that we fight so much for, we think the president is going to solve those problems. But in reality, what's going to happen is, even if the Supreme Court overturns some of those things, you know who's going to get to decide? Your state and your state leaders are going to decide for you. So that's why it's important to continue to vote down the ballot. Because those people, if what we want to happen in some of those areas actually happens, our local people are going to decide what we actually do. And so please participate. Please go vote. What do they say? If you don't vote, then you lose your right to complain about what happens. So just remember that. Um, I have like a couple of things that don't really fit in a point, but I'm going to throw them in here because I got one point left, but I want to do that one all together. Um, one of the things that I wonder is, are, are politics a distraction for the church? Is it the enemy actually getting us off track and arguing with each other instead of focusing on what we're supposed to be doing? The mission of making disciples and loving our neighbor. Is it actually a distraction, actually a ploy by the enemy to get us angry at each other? Right? And not just us in this room, but like churches nationally, that we're angry at each other and we're saying, well, this church shouldn't say that and this church shouldn't say that and they can't do this and they can't do that. But is it a distraction? I think we need to be careful to focus on the church making disciples more than we do on politics. 
And that if we're making disciples and we're teaching people the truths of Scripture and giving freedom and understanding and grace and how that works itself out, that we'll all be better off. Right? If we teach people how to live a Christ-centered, biblical-centered life and to think through that well, then I think things get better. I think it gets better. And lastly, just to make sure that we remember this, our hope is in Christ. That's it. Not a, not a political party, not a candidate. Our hope is in Christ. Because God gives authority to leaders. Romans 13.1 Let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. All of your leaders... God knows what's going on. All of your leaders only have authority because God gave it to them. Even your institutions, our government and our structure, were given to us by God. He rules over them. Nothing happens accidentally in a universe that God is in control of. He knows what's happening. And everything else will crumble but God and his word will stand forever. The end of the chapter of 1 Peter that we read this morning for our call to worship says this, For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. The gospel will stand forever. Our political parties will change. They will be different. One of the things I learned is political parties are very different than they were 50 years ago. Right? And that's going to happen again. They're going to change. They're going to be different. They may even collapse. But the word of God and his gospel will still stand. God's people and his church will still be here. Right? We've been here for 2,000 years. Way longer then we've been a country. The church still exists and will still exist forever. We also need to remember that only Jesus can make things right. We talked at the very beginning about God being the source of truth and that God gives the only way to interpret true reality. So if the answer to our problems, if the answer to our problems as Christians, we believe the answer to our problems is sin. Right, then only an answer that includes sin is a correct interpretation of reality. If your politician doesn't include that all people are wicked and sinful and selfish and evil, and unless we change people's hearts, we're not going to do any better. Then that's part of reality, but not the whole picture. Right? We can only be changed with our hearts because of sin. Everything else is just treating the symptoms. Our politicians are just treating the symptoms. Right? Unless we address the sinfulness of our hearts and that we can be made new in Christ and that trusting in Him and relying on Him and giving our lives over to Him because He died for us is the only way for us to do any of this and to make it through any of this and to have conversations and to love others and actually, I think, to have good government. The only hope 
is through Christ who renews sinful hearts and changes the course of history. And no leader, no president, no governor, no senator has any authority out of, outside of what is given to him by God, who is the true ruler over all things. I think that's, if you remember anything from anything I've said, it's that, that God is the true ruler over all things. And the real answer to all of our disagreements and all of our political discussions and all of the things that we experience in daily life that are hurtful and broken, the answer to all of those is the gospel of Jesus. Because he is the only one that has the solution to all of those. Right? He's the only one that can give us new hearts. We trust in him and rely on him. So let us seek him and remember that he is our ruler. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. God, I just want to pray this morning for, for wisdom for us that in this season, and oh man, I didn't even mention that this is going to be way more complicated because now a supreme justice has passed away over the weekend and so now all of that is thrown into all of this. But God, I pray that you would give us wisdom in just how to navigate these things, these things that seem to be so big and that our culture is making a big deal out of. God, I pray that you would help us to, to have wisdom and insight and understanding and grace toward each other and to those that we, we would disagree with. Because I, I think if we just take the one concept that we made in your image, and just focus on that, apply that to everything that we do, that we would change so much in our lives because I, I'm afraid that one of the things that we're doing in the midst of all of this is we're actually dehumanizing our opponents or our enemies or those that we disagree with so that we, we don't even treat them like humans. We don't even talk to them about them like they're real people and people are wishing that their opponents would die and all of these other things. You don't say that about somebody who's an actual person. Just don't do that. So I pray that you would help us to see that even those who seem so different than us are still your image bearers. And all of us, we all need you. No matter where we stand, politically or where we've been or what, what's happening, that we all need you. You are the only answer to our sinful hearts. And that that lasts for eternity not just the next four years or eight years or even 200, but that what we do with you as we trust in you and give our lives to you changes our lives for all eternity. And that you are the true ruler who teaches us and enables us and shows us how to have wisdom and grace and love and compassion for those who are so different than us that feel like our enemies. I pray that you would help us, you would give us strength, you would give us compassion, you would give us understanding, you would give us insight even to our own views, that we would see where we might be wrong, where we misapplied something or we didn't think something through as much as we should have. God, I pray that you would help us, you would help us center everything on your word and on your truth. In your name I pray. Amen.